remain standing our gospel lesson, which is also our sermon text, the same as last week's sermon text, because this verse, this passage is foundational to John's gospel, setting the theme. So listen carefully to the gospel of God. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now, both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Jesus said to her, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. And there were set there six water pots of stone according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, The master of the feast called the bridegroom and he said to him, every man at the beginning sets out the good wine. And when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior, you have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. Thus far, the reading of God's word, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for showing us your glory and giving us faith to believe in you, to believe in your son. Help us through your spirit to understand and to apply the word that he has inspired. We ask this in Jesus name. Amen. Please be seated. The Apostle Paul says that the Son of God came in the fullness of time. That means he came at just the right time. He came at the perfect time. He came when the wine of the old creation had run its course. The old creation, the old wine were giving out. The old wineskin was failing. They needed to be replaced. It was time for something new. So Jesus came to usher in the new creation. He came to supply new and better wine. Isaiah 25, we read this passage last week. It looks forward to a time when God, when when God's people are drinking wine at a feast prepared by God himself. Isaiah 25, verse 6 says, The Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. Isaiah's vision of the new creation is a vision of, of a feast with well-aged and well-refined wine. That means the best wine. 
Isaiah also envisions true and lasting joy in this same passage. Two verses later in Isaiah 25 verse 8, Isaiah writes, He will swallow up death forever and the Lord will wipe away tears from all faces. Verse 9, this is the Lord. We have waited for him. We will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. These promises from Isaiah 25 have not yet reached their final fulfillment. There are still tears. Our joy and gladness have not been perfected yet. But their fulfillment has begun. These promises are being fulfilled in Christ and by Christ already. Christ inaugurated the new creation when he came to earth, especially when he rose from the dead. He has already begun the process of making all things new. There's more to come, but the new creation has arrived. The kingdom of God is here. It's already here and it's not yet here in its fullness at the same time. And at the center of God's kingdom, at the heart of this new creation, is a plentiful feast with rich food and choice wine. And you can take part in this feast now, already. But it's only for those who belong to Christ. Only those who put their faith in Jesus get to partake of this eschatological feast, this this feast of the last days. You can partake only if you can see the glory of God as it is revealed in Jesus Christ. Only followers of Jesus get to experience the new joy and the new wine of the new creation. For those of you who are using or following the sermon outline, I'll cover the first portion rather quickly since I covered it in, at more length last Sunday. If, you're, if you weren't here last week and you want to go deeper in the first two or three points, then you can go back and listen to the sermon from last Sunday, which is online. But let's look at them very briefly. The, the first verse in John 2 says that the wedding in Cana took place on the third day. And the phrase on the third day is frequently used in the New Testament and in the early church writings, for that matter, to date the resurrection, to allude to the day of resurrection. Jesus died on Friday and rose two days later on Sunday, which is to say he rose on the third day. The third day from Friday is Sunday. The day Jesus rose from the dead was the first day the first official day of the new creation. That first resurrection Sunday was the day that the new age dawned. As the, as the sun was coming up on that Sunday morning, the Son of God was coming up from the grave and the new creation was dawning. That's when the old began to pass away, and the new began to come. 
and to replace the old, to displace the old. The reference to the third day in John 2, 1 points us, it reminds us of uh, the resurrection, new creation. It also points to transformation. The new creation is a transformation of the old. Christ's new body is a transformation of his old body. Jesus did not make wine out of nothing. He made it out of water. He transformed water into wine. Resurrection is transformation. New creation is transformation of old creation. Jesus is in the business of transforming things. Creation, people, especially people. He transforms people into new creatures, new creations. Remember 2 Corinthians 5.17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Why? Because he is in Christ who is the beginning of this new creation in his resurrection. If you're in Christ, the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Jesus has transformed your heart. And one day he will come back in glory to transform your body, your old body into a new body. And you will be like him. But we also need to see that this third day in verse one is the sixth day overall in John's gospel. We looked at this in detail last week. Day one begins in John one, verse 19. Goes to verse 28. Day 2 begins in verse 29. Goes to verse 34. Day 3 begins in verse 35 to 42. Day 4, verse 43 to the end of chapter 1. And then the first verse of chapter 2 fast forwards to day 6. The third day from day 4 brings us to the sixth day. The phrase on the third day means two days later. So last week we asked why John went to so much trouble keeping track of these first six days in the ministry of Jesus. It's not necessarily normal. It's not the way they did gospel writing or history writing, biographies or anything like that. We saw that John wants us to see the parallel between the first six days of the ministry of Jesus and the first six days of creation. The first six days of the work of Jesus at the beginning of his ministry are equal in in force to the first six days of the work of God at the beginning of time. There's an emphasis on the number six in this passage and and really in John's gospel. We'll see this in later sermons. this, This is the sixth day And there are six water pots. And this emphasis on the number six reminds us that Jesus is the new Adam. The first Adam was created on the sixth day. Jesus is doing his first miraculous sign, his first work in his ministry on the sixth day. He also goes to the cross At the end of this gospel, he goes to the cross on which day? The sixth day. Friday. Jesus is the new man, the new Adam. The new Adam, or the name Adam in Hebrew just means man. And in two places, 
in the New Testament, in Romans 5 and in 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul says that Jesus is the second Adam or the last Adam. Christ is the new Adam who came to do what the first Adam failed to do. He's the new and improved man. He will lay his life down for his bride instead of giving her over to the serpent. Because he is the true and faithful bridegroom. And John's gospel presents Jesus as the bridegroom who lives and dies for the sake of his bride. This idea of a bride and a bridegroom is in John 2 and John 3 and John 4 very explicitly. We'll see a little bit of that later. He is the, the bridegroom who lays his life down for the bride. John's gospel also shows Jesus interacting with the woman from Genesis 3.15. And here's where I'm going to expand on what we talked about last week. If you were hoping this week's sermon was going to be a little bit more normal, then you might be disappointed. And the reason we have to talk about these things that might seem a little abnormal or far-fetched to our modern minds is because John was not a modern man or modern author, he wrote with literary depth, layers, typology, symbolism that we don't get because of the things that we read typically. So we have to really apply our minds. And if we're going to understand John's gospel, we have to get this right at the beginning, how John works, how he tells history in a very theological and typological way. So we see throughout John, especially John's gospel more than the other gospels, Jesus interacting with the woman from Genesis 3.15. Christ's bride is the woman from Genesis 3.15. That, that shouldn't be controversial at all. Genesis 3.15 is where God says that Satan and the woman are going to be at war until the end of time. And one day, God says, the woman will produce a male offspring, a male child who will crush the head of Satan. We know that this male child is Jesus. He crushed the devil on the cross in his death and resurrection. But who is the woman in Genesis 3.15? Who's the one that gives birth to Jesus? Well, it's not Eve. Eve is only a representative of the woman. She symbolizes the woman. She is a type of the woman, a foreshadow of the woman. But she's not the woman, and it's not Mary. We talked about this when I preached on Revelation 12. It's, Mary is not the woman in Revelation 12, at least not primarily. She is also a representative of the woman, a type or a foreshadow of the church. No, the woman in Genesis 3.15 and the woman throughout the Bible, the important, important woman, capital W, woman, is the people of God. The woman is God's bride, his church, his people. In the Old Testament, the woman was Israel. In the New Testament, the woman is the church. In the Old Testament, the woman's husband is, was Yahweh. In the New Testament, the woman's husband is Yahweh in the flesh, the Lord Jesus Christ. Revelation 12 is a great place to go to read about the continued history 
of this woman. Genesis 3 says the woman will give birth to the Messiah who will crush the serpent's head. Revelation 12 describes how this happened. And then it tells us more about this woman, the rest of her history. In Revelation 12, the woman gives birth to the Christ child who conquers Satan and throws him down to the earth. And then the woman gives birth to more believers who continue to conquer Satan, it says, through the blood of the lamb, through the blood of that male child, that important child that was born. The rest of the offspring conquer Satan. Genesis 3 and Revelation 12 summarize the story of the woman and her offspring. In other words, Genesis 3 and Revelation 12 summarize the story of God's people. The woman is the bride, the church. And John's gospel jumps into this story, jumps right in and fleshes it out for us, gives us some more details. It tells the same story. All the books of the Bible are telling the same story. They jump in at different places and focus on different things so that we get the full story. And one of John's main themes is to tell us about this woman. John repeatedly shows Jesus interacting with the woman from Genesis 3.15. Maybe you've noticed this. Have you ever noticed while you're reading John's gospel how many stories there are of Jesus interacting with a woman? Big chunks of scripture are dedicated, of John's gospel are dedicated to Jesus and a woman in a conversation of some kind. And have you ever noticed how often the woman is addressed as woman, almost, not almost, somewhat awkwardly. Again, our modern minds don't get this very easily. We have to be saturated in Bible before this begins to make sense, what John is doing. There are a lot of references to the woman in John's gospel. Some of you probably haven't noticed this, but I want you to feel it. I want you to feel the force of this, so I'm going to have you turn in your Bibles to the places where John uses women in his storyline for the purpose of pointing us to the woman from Genesis 3.15 and Revelation 12. First, flip over a couple of chapters to John 4. John 4 is about the Samaritan woman who meets Christ at Jacob's well. There are a lot of parallels between our passage in John 2 and, our, and the story of the Samaritan woman in John 4. I'm going to try not to pre, try to hold off on preaching the whole sermon, uh, even though it's going to be hard. Jesus tells this Samaritan woman in John 4 that the water from Jacob's well, I think Israel's well, Old Covenant well, will leave her thirsty. Only the water that Jesus gives her will satisfy forever. And in John 4, 14, Jesus says that the water he provides will become a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. And then look at what Jesus says in verse 16. John 4, 16, Jesus said to her, go call your husband. And come here. Verse 17, the woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have well said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. 
and the one you have now is not your husband. In that you have spoke, you have spoken truly. Verse 19, the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. And now skip down to verse 21 and look at how Jesus addresses this woman. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming. And he goes on. Notice the parallels between what Jesus says here and what Jesus says to Mary and John too. In each place, Jesus addresses the woman as woman. And then he refers to a coming hour. So there's woman, and then he refers to a, a time that's not yet here, a coming hour. That's going to be important in a minute. Notice one more thing about John 4. How many husbands has this woman had? Five. Who is her sixth husband? Figuratively, who is this woman's sixth husband? This is continuing the theme of the Jesus as bridegroom. He, her sixth man, the one she's living with in her house right now, the would-be sixth husband, is not, is not her true husband, Jesus says. In this story, Jesus is the true husband. And so we notice that the number six shows up again. But the main point here is that this Samaritan woman symbolizes the woman from Genesis 3.15. Now turn to John 8. This is the story of the woman caught in adultery. The scribes and the Pharisees bring her to Jesus to ask him whether she should be stoned. And they're trying to trap him. And Jesus says in John 8 verse 7, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. No one throws the stone, of course, and everyone leaves. And then Jesus says to her in verse 10, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? Remember what Satan is called in Revelation 12, the accuser of the brethren. The woman is not condemned. She's not accused because she is with Jesus. Now quickly turn to John 19. John 19 records the crucifixion of Jesus. And I want you to look at John 19 verses 26 and 27. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he and then to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her to his home. There's a lot going on here as well. But just for now, just notice that Jesus again refers to his mother as woman. And once again, he uses the word hour. Now look at chapter 20. John 20 records the resurrection of Jesus. Verses 11 to 18 are about Mary Magdalene's trip to the empty tomb on Sunday morning. Verse 11 says that she was weeping. In verse 13, the angels ask her, woman, why are you weeping? And then down in verse 15, Jesus sees her and asks the same question. Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And in this scene, Jesus is the new Adam and Mary Magdalene is the new Eve, the new woman. The text even indicates that they were that this scene takes place in a garden. 
just as the original man and woman were in a garden. And like the first Adam, Jesus has just awakened from a deep sleep. He's just risen from the dead. Uh, a sleep that God induced in both cases. And the first person Jesus meets is a woman, Mary, who is representative of the church. The first woman was created from Adam's side. Christ's woman, the church, was created from the water and blood that flowed from his side. And when the woman tries to cleave to the bridegroom, Jesus tells her in verse 17, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father. In other words, my hour has not yet, still not yet, fully come. So you can't hold fast to me just yet. Here again, the time is still, the fullness of the time is still in the future. The fullness of the hour, the completion of the hour is not yet. Okay, now let's look at look back at chapter 2 and see if this helps us interpret the, interpret verse 4. Let me read verses 3 and 4 again. This time I'll read my own translation a little bit more literally. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Jesus said to her, what is this to me and to you, woman? My hour has not yet come. The question that stumps most interpreters, especially modern interpreters, this actually did not stump the early church. Um, it, it really is a modern problem. But the, the, the question that stumps most interpreters is, why does Jesus refer to his own mother as woman? This doesn't make any more sense in in, you know, in the Greek or in the first century culture than it does today. Some, some have tried to say that, it, you know, this was a cultural thing. No, it, it wasn't at all. It seems, if we are you know, just reading it without context and not knowing what John is doing, it seems cold and rude. And most of the commentaries stumble around in the dark and search for an explanation for why Jesus does this. And the problem is that there are no other places in all of Greek and Jewish literature where a son addresses his mother as woman in this way. So the scholars don't know what to do. They don't have anything to compare it to. No examples to go by. One commentator notes this fact with frustration. He says, the term woman is never addressed to a mother by a son in all of known Greek or Jewish literature. So there is no known context from which to compare its use here. Basically saying, we just maybe we just can't know what's going on. There's no example. And yet in John's gospel, it happens twice. Here in John 2, and then Jesus calls her woman again in John 19. It is crucifixion on the cross. Some interpreters suggest that when Jesus calls her woman, he is distancing himself from her and maybe even rebuking her for coming to him at this party and telling him about the wine problem. But that can't be right because Jesus addresses his mother as woman when he's on the cross. And in that context, he is certainly not distancing himself from her or rebuking her or being cold or rude. There's only one way to understand 
why Jesus addresses his mother, Mary, as woman. And by the way, the early church fathers got this. The, the, the fathers like, you know, Justin, Martyr, and, and Irenaeus, who lived in the second century, they were closest to the apostle John, in one case even alive at the same time John was alive, perhaps. They, this wasn't a problem for them. He does this because Mary symbolizes the woman from Genesis 3.15. Mary is a representative figure. She is standing in for God's people. She, she, she's a foreshadow of the church. Like the, like the woman at the well, like the woman caught in adultery, like Mary Magdalene, the mother of Jesus points beyond herself to the woman in Genesis 3 and Revelation 12 and all throughout Scripture. She represents God's people. She symbolizes the bride of Christ. This helps us understand the end of verse 4 as well, where Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. What hour is he talking about? The term hour here is sort of a technical way of referring to Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension. The hour didn't come when Jesus died fully. It, it didn't even come fully when he rose from the dead. The hour only fully came when Jesus ascended to the Father. That's when the Father fully glorified the Son. You see, the hour in John is the hour of his glorification. Those two ideas go together. The hour, the time, and glorification by the Father. And this explains why Jesus tells Mary Magdalene not to cling to him in John 20. At that point, Jesus had still, he had, he had still not completed the glorification process. His hour had still not fully come. Jesus couldn't cleave to his bride. His bride couldn't cling to him until the hour of glorification had fully arrived. Something similar is going on here in John 2, 4, when Jesus tells Mary that his hour has not yet come. It wasn't time for the Father to glorify Jesus through His death and resurrection and ascension. It wasn't time for Him to go to the cross. So Jesus decides to give Mary and the disciples a foretaste. A foretaste of the cross. In changing the water into wine, John provides a picture of what He will accomplish when His hour does come. Jesus gives them a glimpse of the glory to come. The wine that Jesus creates at Cana points ahead to the blood of Jesus on the cross. And to understand what's going on linguistically in John 2.4, we need to turn one more time to, to Matthew 8. At the very end of Matthew 8, Jesus meets two demon-possessed men. And if you're in Matthew 8, look with me at what the demons say to Jesus in Matthew 8, verse 29. And suddenly they cried out, saying, What have we to do with you, Jesus, the Son of God, or you, Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now, the question that these demons ask Jesus is the same 
question. It's the same idiom that Jesus asks Mary. Jesus says to Mary in John 2, what is this to me and to you? The demons say to Jesus in Matthew 8, what is this to us and to you? Same form. Then the demons address Jesus with a significant title. What is this to us and to you, Jesus, you son of God, O son of God? And then the demons remind the son of God, that title's important, they remind the son of God that their appointed time of judgment by the son of God has not yet come. One day, the son of God will throw all of the demons into the bottomless pit, into the lake of fire, the abyss, but that hour, that final hour has not yet come. So Jesus gives them a foretaste of their coming doom. Remember what he does. He sends the demons into the pigs, and then he sends the pigs into the sea, the water. The same linguistic pattern occurs in John 2, 4. I'm not suggesting that the relationship between Jesus and Mary is like the relationship between the demons and Jesus. That's not the point at all. I'm only pointing out the grammatical similarities so we can understand what's going on. In John 2, 4, Jesus asks Mary the same question. What is this to me and to you? And then he addresses Mary with a significant title that has to do with the conversation, that has to do with the statement that he's making. He calls her woman. In the Greek, woman comes at the end of the question, not at the beginning, just as it does in Matthew 8, 29. What is this to me and to you, woman? And then Jesus reminds Mary that his appointed time of glorification has not yet come. Just as the demons remind Jesus that the time's not yet come. But this doesn't mean that Jesus is going to do nothing. He doesn't do nothing in Matthew 8, right? He still does something. No, Jesus gives Mary and the disciples a foretaste of his coming glory. He changes the water into wine, and this wine points forward to his death on the cross. I'll I'll note another thing. This conversation between Jesus and Mary it may not include everything that was said. When you read the Gospels, you have to understand that the, that the conversations, the stories are condensed. So we get the important parts that have theological and historical significance. And there's a reason that Jesus chooses to use six water pots that were typically used for purification rituals. The point that Jesus is making is that his death, his the shedding of his blood would be the ultimate purification from sin. The blood of Christ does away with all the Jewish purification rites. All the washings and the sacrifices of the old covenant have been nullified. They have been replaced by the blood of the lamb, which truly cleanses from sin. There was no power in the old covenant rituals, but there is power in the blood of Jesus. Jesus is the Lamb of God and His sacrifice, His blood takes away the sin of the world. Listen to what this same John says in his first letter. 1 John 1 verse 7. If we walk in the light as He is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. Keep in mind that these purification jars were not meant to be drunk out of. They, they didn't hold drinking water. But then 
also keep in mind what Jesus says a little later in John's gospel in John 6. John 6, 53. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood lives in me and I in him. The blood of Jesus is true drink that gives new life. It gives everlasting life. Finally, John 2.11 says that when Jesus performed this sign, he manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Jesus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. In Scripture, joy is the fruit of seeing the glory of God. You cannot have joy if you do not know God and his glory. God's glory is the reason you exist. It's the reason you're here. God made everything and does everything for his glory. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. So if you know little or nothing of God's glory, then you know little or nothing about why you exist and therefore little or nothing about real joy, the joy of the Lord. True, lasting joy is the fruit of seeing the glory of Jesus. The glory of Jesus was on display in this miracle at Cana, but it was especially on display a few years later when his hour came, when he died on the cross and rose from the dead and ascended to his Father in heaven. True, lasting joy is the fruit of seeing the glory of Jesus at the cross. And when you see the glory of the cross, the cross event, you must embrace it. You must hold fast to it. You must believe in it. You must entrust yourself to it. Give yourself to it completely. Not in part. Not holding anything back. The end of verse 11 says that the disciples put their faith in Jesus. They saw his glory and then they entrusted themselves to him. True, lasting joy is the fruit of putting your faith in Jesus. Whatever you look to for your deepest joy is what you are putting your faith in and trusting yourself to. If you find your deepest joy in work or in sports or in your studies or in a lover or in financial security, feeling like you've just got control of your life, then you are trusting in something other than Jesus. And that wine is going to run out. That joy is not true, lasting joy. It's temporary. The wines of the world always, always lose their sparkle at some point. I know you're thinking, but this thing or this person or this job or this event is the one that's going to bring me what I've been looking for all my life. But it won't. The sensual and the visual 
and the intellectual joys of life will not endure. But the wine that Christ gives, the joy you find in Jesus, increases as life goes on. It doesn't go away. It increases. Those who put their trust in Christ will flourish. Listen to Psalm 92, verses 12 to 14. The righteous will flourish like the palm tree and grow like the cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green. Children, young people, do you want to flourish in your old age? Do you want to bear fruit when you're old? Do you want to flourish like a palm tree or like like one of the cedars in Lebanon when you're old? Then stay planted in the house of our God, in the house of the Lord. Stay planted in God's word. Stay planted in Jesus Christ. Stay connected to the bridegroom. Stay connected to the vine. Keep looking at Jesus and his glory. Keep entrusting yourself to him. Keep trusting him to come through for you, just as Mary does here in this story. Just lean on him, cast your cares on him, and let him figure out how it's going to work out. Keep doing whatever he tells you to do even when you are in doubt about how it's going to work out, especially when you are in doubt about how it's going to all work out. Keep finding your joy in him and in him alone. Stick to the wine of the kingdom of God and give up on the wine of the world. And when you're old, you'll still be bearing fruit. You'll still be green. You'll still be full of sap. You'll still be bearing the fruit of the spirit. Let's pray and ask for God's help in doing this. Father, thank you for your word, for the riches of your gospel. And give us grace to be both hearers and doers of it. We ask in Jesus' name.